So let's just keep that in mind as we go into a review of the game. But before we go into the review, I just want to let you know that if you are listening to this on the day that this podcast goes out, which is Halloween, we are in the final 24 to 48 hours of our first holiday giveaway in which we are giving away a copy of this game that is signed by the artist Sai Beppu. So make sure that you are following and commenting on all of our posts across all of our platforms because each one of those individual unique things, every comment, every like is another entry into the giveaway. And it's not just for us doing the same thing over on travelgames.co.uk and every 10 euros of purchase that you purchase from that site is also a unique entry. So you can really rack up a ton of entries by just interacting with us. We love interacting with you throughout the holidays. We'll be giving away things like family game bundles. We'll be giving away signed copies of games, things like that. So now let's actually get into the review of Nightmare Millionaire because there's a reason that we actually started off our holiday giveaways with this game is because it is actually quite an enjoyable family weight climbing and shedding game in which if you don't mind a little bit of the luck that might come from the way that the scoring mechanism works, then I think that this is going to be a game that you can pull out not only during Halloween season, but in other times of the year. So first of all, let's talk about just the great art that has been done here by Sai Beppu, and that's going to be a common theme of today because she's the artist in another of these games as well. Any type of these game Noah games that are designed by Kenichi Kabuki are always kind of, I think, really has a part of the game that is a bit eccentric, a bit out there, and that actually makes these games kind of interesting and makes me keep coming back to just even see what kind of mechanism really happened here. And in this game, it is the scoring and the way that the scoring works that made me interested to see just how it works. The fact is that people can, because it is all based on the wild cards that are in other people's hands and in the draw pile. People have this sense of trying to stay in the game as long as possible just to, if they cannot win themselves, actually make sure that the winner of that round gets as few points as possible. So even if you are dealt a really bad hand of cards, you are just trying to survive for another round. So you're going to be playing your wild cards as soon as possible. Maybe you're not going to use those wild cards to get a pair of sixes or a really high run. You just know that the other person sitting across from you is doing really, really well. They are shedding their hand really, really fast. So you want to get those wild cards from your hand onto the table however you possibly can. And what I think works really well for this game is that the way in which you get rid of cards from your hand, it has to keep with the same place. And we talked about this when we talked about Pin Combi Trio, and we talked about this in our video review of Nightmare Millionaire as well. The fact that you have to play the same play as the person before you, the, the starting play. So if the starting player plays only one card, a solo card, everybody else can only play a solo card. If the starting player plays a pair of cards, everybody else can only play a pair of cards. And what that actually means is that for the special cards that are up plus two or a plus three, it really limits the amount of choices that you have to make. You're not sitting there saying, well, I could use a plus three as a one plus three or a two plus three or a three plus three, or I could use that plus three to do a plus two to do a two. And then that makes it a five. There's like just telling you that like verbally is probably really annoying to listen to and hard to keep track of, but keeping that in your mind throughout a game is a lot. But because you're actually just doing the same play as the person before you, you only have to think about, okay, they played a pair of threes. How can I beat a pair of threes? Well, I have a four and I have a two and I have a plus two. Oh, so that in my head, I can automatically pair those up to be a pair of fours. And that works. We're on to the next person. And 
that not only makes it more family friendly in terms of the depth of the game or how easy it might be to understand, but it also makes the game just quite a bit more snappy. I have found that this game is a little less prone to analysis paralysis type of players than other climbing and shedding games just because there's not a whole lot of choice that you have in your hand or you just say, okay, I can't do anything. I'm just going to pass because passing is quite nice because you can make your hand stronger because you might be drawing one of those wild cards and in essence, either making your hand more powerful or being able to make the winning player, the strongest player that you think is winning, able to score less points and you're able to survive another round. Now, Saying that and saying how good it is for a family game doesn't mean that this game is going to be for everyone because there's definitely that style of play that this is not going to work for. And it is all based on what you think of that scoring system. So far, I've only told you why I think it works well in that there is a sense of just trying to survive, right? But not everybody is going to see it that way. You might be able to plan out a perfect strategic hand. Your timing was perfect. You made lots of good pairs you passed at just the right time and you made your hand utter perfection so then you just shed your hand out like it was like you are an expert in the game and you get one point for that and then the next round you do the exact same thing and you get one point again okay well you've spent the last 10 minutes doing some good work and you're one point away from winning this game and somebody gets to the next round and it turns out that they just were dealt the perfect hand of cards and they score all three points and they win. So they were basically good for three to five minutes of the game. You were better for longer and you lost the game. And there is really two perspectives, two ways of looking at that same idea. For some people, it's going to be annoying. For some people, it's going to be that wait, I played better in this game and I lost? How does that happen? And there is nothing that I can do to convince you then that this game is for you. In fact, I don't even want to convince you that this game is for you. There's going to be a game probably later that we talk about that's going to be much more up your alley because this one is really going to be more for the people who are on the flip side of that. And see that as a way of everybody is always in this game. There is never a round in which you are going to be completely out of it because you might be down, you might be playing with four players, let's say, and the other three players are all at one or two points, right? And you're sitting there at zero. There is always the possibility, because I've seen it happen, where you get all three of those points in a round, or you get two points in a round, which happens quite often, and now you're right back in the thick of it. In other games, it's a lot harder to get people motivated to just stay in the game. They're losing. They're losing all these rounds, and they don't want to play anymore because it just seems like, okay, everybody else is just so much better than me. Even if I win one round, why is that going to matter? Well, one round in this game is all it takes. And I think that's what makes it really good for this family weight style of game. Anybody can win this game at any point. So if you're looking for a good family weight climbing and shedding game for this Halloween season, I recommend you Nightmare Millionaire. And that's Nightmare Millionaire, designed by Kabuki Kaniti, and the art is by Sai Beppu, and published by Game Noah. Hmm, what game should I talk about next? Should I talk about a social deduction game or another card game? Hmm, let's go with the social deduction game next, even though I definitely put it in the other order in the intro. Let's talk about Heaven Here I Come, a social deduction game from Hong Kong. 
And before I go into how to play and the review of it, know that this was a review copy that we got for free in return for a review. But know that we accepted it only on the condition that we are going to give our fair and honest review. And trust me, I think that there's going to be part of this review, if not the whole thing, that they really don't like. So this game is a scapegoat style of game in which everybody has a combination of sins that make up one of the seven deadly sins. And the worst sins are trying to get rid of the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is kind of, of the de seven deadly sins, the weakest one. And there's a table that everybody has that shows the rank of the sins. Now, these deadly sins are a combination of two sin cards. And these sin cards are going to be all around the table. What your actual deadly sin is, is a combination of the sin card to your left and the sin card to your right. And these are in between each person that is sitting on the table. So actually, you're going to take a look at the sin card to your left, for example, and that's going to be your left sin, but the person to your left's right hand sin. Okay, so automatically, you're going to know a bit of information of the person that's sitting to your left. And the person to your left is going to know a bit of information about you, but what actually makes up your deadly sin is also that left sin, but also your right sin. So it's gonna be the same going the other way. Now, the sin cards that are not used as an identity will be used in your hand. And you are going to actually use the cards in your hand to kind of say, okay, well, I have these sins that, okay, those, these sins are not on the table, right? But you're also going to use this as accusation cards. After that initial setup, there's actually no real structure to the game other than the conversation that people around the table are going to have, and they can slowly ask questions. They can't ask questions about the identity cards themselves, the specific uh, sin card that they have in front of them, because then you're actually gaining information of multiple people at the same time. But you can basically ask pretty much any other question that you want. And when you think that you've figured out who the scapegoat is, who the weakest one at the table is, you will use one of the sin cards that you have in your hand and play it in front of you face up. So now everybody else at the table knows what sin card you had in your hand. But again, this is not your identity sin, but they just gained a little bit of information. They will then vote if they agree with you that that's the scapegoat or not. If they vote no, I don't think that that's the scapegoat, then you'll keep playing. If they vote yes, then you need to announce if that person is the scapegoat. So the person who was voted will say, okay, this is my sin. You'll compare it. Were they the weakest one? If they were, in fact, the scapegoat, then they get one last chance to point out who all of the strongest deadly sins were around the table as kind of a last stand, if you will. And if they get that right, then they actually win the game. But if they can't do that, then they lose. But in fact, if you accuse the wrong player of being the scapegoat and they weren't in fact the scapegoat, then the scapegoat team wins. And that's how you play Heaven Here I Come. Now, I think really the selling point, and when I was at the booth, I was playing some other games that we're actually going to be reviewing. Um, the selling point of this game is really in that lack of structure. I think that there are a lot of social deduction games out there. And listening to the history, I think it was no pun included that did kind of a history of werewolf and mafia and these style of games in their review of Blood on the Clock Tower. And I will put a link to that in the description below. It's a long watch, but a worthwhile one. And 
there are certain things about social deduction that really draws people to the genre, but there's a lot of things that push people away from the genre. Let's start with the former of things that kind of bring people into the genre. It's a good opportunity to have a lot of fun with your friends, and especially if your friends know each other really well, it's a way of bluffing. It's a reason to lie to your friends, and that can be really enjoyable. Now, some people really like the structure that you have from some social deduction games, the fact that you have a reason to lie or you have a lie that's kind of already made for you in a way. So take board game dojo favorite Deception, Murder in Hong Kong, in which you are trying to find who at the table is the murderer. The murderer has a lot of things that they can use on the table to create a lie or at least create some doubt of the accusations that are kind of thrown at them. So let's say that they were in fact the murderer and they had chosen an axe as the murder weapon. Now, the forensic scientist who's trying to give hints to the people at the table might say that, okay, it's something sharp that the murderer used to murder the victim. And so people are looking at the axe of the murderer and they're saying, well, I don't know, an axe is sharp. But then the murderer can turn around and say, well, that person has a knife, so that's also sharp. So that could be it because you don't know who the murderer is or not yet, right? And so there's that kind of built-in structure of the thing. And then after, you know, you have like this kind of discussion time, there's a set time that everybody can come around and say, okay, I think that so far, based on the clues that we've given, it seems like this murder weapon makes sense and this murder weapon makes sense. This evidence con- this evidence card makes sense, things like that. So there's very structured point to the game, right? And what heaven here I come is saying is actually it's not the structure that people really like about social deduction games. What people like about social deduction games is in the actual conversation that it's sparking. It's the chance to lie. It's the chance to accuse each other and kind of glean information from these accusations and kind of voting. So it actually does away with completely all of the structure. You could actually end this game in five minutes if you wanted to, but you really, really, really shouldn't because what this game actually kind of relies on is people to make the game work. And what I mean by that is, is that Basically, you have your setup, and your setup is going to take a little bit of time based on how many players you have playing, right? This is a five to ten player game, so it's going to take a little bit to make sure you have the sin cards in between everybody and then stuff like that. It's, it's, it's not too bad at all. I, I make that sound a lot. But you have your setup, but then you have nothing. Like, it is all on the players. This game starts when the first player starts talking when the first player starts accusing this game is a game in which you want to start accusing kind of early kind of start asking these kind of questions of well you can't ask about gluttony or you can't ask about greed right but you could say like who likes money or things like that you're trying to see these people's faces and try to see everybody at the table how hesitant they are okay well greed is a weaker sin so people want to say that they're greedy but at some point people didn't really know what I mean. So does that mean that they don't have greed then in front of them? So that means maybe they're a stronger one. So it's things like that. And you're kind of deducing, but you're also relying on the fact that other people are also going to pipe in and other people are actually going to accuse people. And then you're relying on the fact that not only are you going to accuse people, so then you're going to put down one of the sin cards in your hand so that you can get a little bit more information, but that people are going to vote no for it. 
because if you vote yes, well, the game's over now. But if you vote no, well, now everybody at the table has a little bit more information. And you're going to do this over and over again, trying to use the little bits of sin cards that you get from other people using their sin cards for accusations to, in fact, find who the scapegoat is. Because really, it is almost an all versus one or an all versus a couple style of game. And this very reason is the reason why I think that for a majority of people, this game is not going to work because you have to know your game group really, really well. You have to be extremely confident that everybody in your group is going to be able to not be shy during the game. So even if you have somebody that's usually energetic and they're just not having a good day, this game is not going to work. You need everybody participating at their fullest energy levels. You cannot have anybody who is anxious at all right? You can't have anybody who's even somewhat skittish about lying to their group at the moment, right? This is probably not going to work super well with people who do not know each other um, because you're going to be accusing people pretty harshly, right, throughout the table. You're going to be, you know, just throwing out accusations. And if you're not comfortable maybe in a new group or maybe there's people that are, you know, playing this game aggressively that might not play with your playing style, it just doesn't really work. So there's so many reasons why this game is not going to work. And for my group, it definitely hung in there. One of the reasons that I think social deduction games have actually really done well for me is that they can be played by a wide group of people who both know each other or don't know each other. And that's the reason Deception Murder in Hong Kong has worked so well for us specifically, because while other games, even that cockroach poker might be a little bit much because you're just putting down something that says, well, this is a cockroach. I'm lying straight to your face, right? Whereas, you know, other games can just be like I said before, where it's like, oh, well, yes, an axe is sharp, but a knife is also sharp. Well, I mean, that you're kind of trying to distract them, but you're not really lying. So there's that sense that it's good for people who are just first getting into this genre of game. Whereas Heaven Here I Come, the fun of it is in the players. And if you are not able to lie, to throw out accusation, to talk, and I don't just mean talk, I mean argue, I mean bicker, you have to be able to do these things in order to make this game work because of that lack of structure, because of that very thing that is marketed at of, hey, we don't think the social deduction game needs to have structure to have fun. People just want, you know, give them something to lie about and they want to lie about it. But for me, I just haven't found that to really be the case, especially with this game. There are so many social deduction games that are out there that I know that are good, that are trusted, that when I'm trying to introduce a new social deduction game to my group and to my collection, it has to be good from the first couple times or else it's just not worth it because I do just have these games that are just staples in my collection for this one and yet without fail when i introduce this to new people the first game is just always a bit of silence and then i'll try to coax something right i'll try to start kind of leaning people into what kind of questions they should be asking but it's just not intuitive at all of how on earth i'm going to be able to get any kind of information okay so you're telling me that i should be accusing people even though i know it's wrong because you need me to give you information but why would i want to give you information. I just want to sit here and wait for somebody else to do that. So then I'm always kind of starting and being like, okay, uh, I accuse this person, but make sure we all kind of want to vote no's because I'm kind of giving you information. And then I hope that you give me information. It's just, it has, I don't know. 
it just for me, there's so many things that are working against this. And it kind of just makes me realize like how much I think I prefer my social deduction games to have structure, to have a reason to do certain things that are built into the game that makes it so that people who are playing this for the first time can enjoy it. But there's also a meta that allows each group to make these games their own. And I think that this game is just leaning way too much on the relying people to make it their own, that it just doesn't work for me. I think if it's going to work for a group, it's going to be for the group of people who are extremely good at Dungeons and Dragons, probably way better at it than I am of just making the world their own, being able to think on their feet, but it just, if you do not have that kind of group, which I think is probably a lot of people, then you can stay pretty clear away from this game. Sorry that you gave me a free review copy of the game and I'm telling you that it's not very good, but it's just maybe not for me. And that is Heaven Here I Come, designed by Donald Chan. The art is by Makai and it's published by Broadway Toys Limited. All right, and let's finish things off with Somnia, a spooky yet interesting modern take on a traditional trick-taking game. And this is one of those things that I really, really like. So when I opened up the rulebook for Somnia, and this is both in the Japanese and English version of this game, when I posted pictures of it on Instagram, when you look at this game on the BGG page, the designer, Kazuma Suzuki, always, always, gives a nod to what this game is based off of. So Somnia is based off of old traditional Swiss trick-taking games. And the point of this game was to take two different games, which is called, I'm, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, it's Mitlerjas and Molotovjas, and which one of them is a three-player only trick-taking game. The other one is a four-player trick-taking game. But they have enough commonalities that Suzuki-san was able to combine them and add a two-player version of the game into one package. And that package became Somnia. Now, I think this is partially because of the fact that this game is based on traditional games. So there's lots of just like tiny little rules to learn. But I'm just going to give you the broad overview of, the, I think, the main points of the game. And if you want to go into the full teach of the game, I will throw a link to Taylor's Trick Taking Tables uh, teach of this game in the show description. So Somnia is a must-follow trick-taking game, and that means that whatever suit the player who is starting playing, so let's say they play a white card, then everybody else, if they have a white card in their hand, needs to play a white card. And whoever plays the highest value white card in this example would win that trick. Now, what might happen is that, uh-oh, the starting player played a white card, but I actually don't have any white cards in my hand. I have a red card, a blue card, a green card. So what can I do? Well, okay, in that instance, you can play whatever you want. You're just probably not going to win unless you play the trump suit. One of the things that makes this game interesting is the introduction of the trump suit. The first time that somebody at the table cannot play the same color as the starting color of that play. So in my example, white. Let's say that throughout this game so far, everybody has been able to play the right color. But in this turn, I play a white card and the person after me doesn't have a white card. So they in fact play a green card. That's the first time that somebody played off suit as it's called. And so for the rest of this round, green is going to be the strongest suit 
in the game. In in this game, it's called the Nightmare Suit. See, that's 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 why I chose this game for Halloween. So that means that green cards are going to be the strongest one for the rest of the game. But what that also means is that the points on the card for the green cards are going to be different. Yes, I said that there are points on those cards. Now, some cards don't actually have points, and some cards have one set of points, and some cards have two sets of points. When you win a trick, which meant, again, that you played the highest value and took that trick, you get the points that are on those cards. And again, like I said, not all cards have points, but on the cards that have two sets of points for them, that means that if that suit is the nightmare suit for that round, it is actually worth the higher value of points. But it also means that that card is actually stronger as a nightmare suit. So it might be only worth, and I'm just gonna throw out an arbitrary number, let's say that it's usually worth four points, but in a nightmare suit, which in this case would have been green, if it's a green five, for example, it's actually worth double that in points, which is a really big deal, or at least it can be, because the end game scoring is actually a flow chart. Once the round is over, based on the player count, you'll actually have a different flow chart of who is going to lose a life. Wait, 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 Eric, back up, back up, back up. Lose a life? What do you mean? Well, actually, each player has three lives. And each round, somebody, at least one person, is going to lose a life. Once somebody loses all three of their lives, then the person who has the most lives remaining wins. And it could be multiple people and that ends in a tie. So let me give you an example of what can make people lose a life. And I'll give you the flowchart for the four-player game. The first condition is to see if anybody took 86 or more points. They will lose a life unless they actually took all of the points which means that they took all the cards that have points on them, which means that they don't have to necessarily win all the tricks, they just had to take all the cards with the points, in which case all the other players lose a life. Okay, did nobody score more than 86 points? All right, well, then you have to go to number two, which is if players tied, then they lose a life. And if nobody tied, then you go to the next one. Okay, well, when the top two players take the equal points, a player who comes third loses. Or if the bottom two players take equal points, a person who comes second loses loses. Or when the top two players take equal points and the bottom two players take equal points, everybody loses. So basically, like, you don't want to be in the middle, right? And if not there, the players who come second and third in total points loses. So there's a lot to kind of figure out there, and I hope that the four-player game kind of gives you a sense of kind of how difficult this game can be to kind of get originally. And that is where I'm actually going to start the review because I think you can probably figure out that this game is probably not going to be sitting on your introductory <laughs> trick-taking shelf. And I don't think so. This game does a great job of bringing this traditional trick-taker to a modern board gaming audience with great art by Sai Beppu and really a nice rule set that is able to combine games that were originally only for a single player count into a game that you can play with multiple. I commend that effort. But there are still those ways in which I think there is a modern trick-taking, as it's called like the Renaissance, right? Where people are starting to get into trick-taking because it's a lot easier to onboard people into them, right? A lot of these modern trick-takers have one hook to them and they have a kind of easy-to-follow rule set or at least being able to figure out how to win is a lot easier. But in this game, it definitely takes a couple of games 
to get around how exactly you are going to win. What are you trying to avoid here? There are some tricks to making sure that as long as you kind of get the same kind of generalization down, you're going to be fine. And this is how I usually teach the game of, okay, you definitely don't want to tie. And you definitely probably, unless you can score everything, you want to score some points because like, in, for example, in a three-player game, if you don't score any points, then you lose a life automatically. Like that's the first thing you look at. But you also don't want to score a ton of points. So you somehow want to kind of thread the needle in which you are scoring enough to stay in it, but not so much so that you're actually going to knock yourself out. And it's kind of this weird thing because it also does a great job of maintaining what so far I've read of the original Trick Taker because I've never actually played those versions where it's like you don't want to be in the middle. So it's like this really weird and kind of hard to initially understand concept of like, okay, don't score too much, but don't score too little, but also try to win because being in the middle is not very good. So either you want to win or come in last place, right? And it's so weird. And then you get to the two-player version of the game, which I haven't heard a whole lot of reviews at, and so we actually played it because, actually, that was one of the reasons I got this game, is, again, like, two-player trick-taking sounds really interesting. I think the two-player version of this game is just kind of, eh. I'm not really a huge fan of it for what I actually appreciate in the three- or four-player game, right? And that kind of makes sense in the sense, well, that was really good podcasting there, that... This game was adapted from a game in which it's really bad to be in the middle. Well, how do you get in the middle of two players? How exactly does that work, right? A two-player game, there is no middle. There's only the winner and the loser, and that's what's going to happen. Really, it comes down to there's actually three steps in the flowchart, but the second one just never happened for us, which is a tie. So the first one is just like if somebody scores more than 86, they lose. Okay. So that means that you need to be all in on making sure that the other person just absolutely blows the points out of the water because you're actually going to get rid of some of the cards in this game to make this happen. So you've got to make sure that they win almost everything because if they don't, and you have to be very gung-ho about this, if they don't, it's the person with the least points that loses the heart. And so that means that if you don't get them over the threshold of 86 points, like, and you are going to try to do that strategy, you're going to lose. And I just feel like it's missing that je ne sais quoi about that the three and four player game has. Because with the three and four player game, you're looking around, you're trying to, you know, knock it in the middle. So you're going to either be trying to win or lose, constantly adjusting. And, you know, you're all out on the attack of somebody, but you don't have to, you know, get 100% or nearly 100% on making them win the cards that you want them to win, right? Because you have other people at the table that are helping out and it's just a lot more, you know what I think what it is, is it feels more like a different game at two players. It feels more like combo tracks or a game in which you are just trying to capture momentum between two players going back and forth, back and forth. Whereas the three or four player versions of this game feels a lot more like you're playing with everybody else at the table, both trying to either attack the same person to make them lose or just trying to interact and make sure that you are scoring either higher or lower than the person to your right or left. And this is the hallmark of the game. And so 
where I think I would say I recommend this for groups who are really wanting to do something different in their trick-taking games. At three or four players, I recommend this game. But at two players, if you're buying this game for the two-player experience, you're missing out on what really makes this game so different and so unique in a way. So that is kind of where we fall down on Somnia. And that is Somnia, designed by Kazuma Suzuki, art by Sai Beppu, and published by Tart Games. Well, they've started doing construction here today in the apartment building, so that means it's about time for me to go. Make sure you're going over and following us everywhere we are so that you can be entered into giveaways. And of course, you're staying up to date on all of our YouTube videos and podcasts. Thank you so much. Have a happy Halloween, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, jane.